Well, thanks, Tom, for um, taking the time to read that carefully for us. Uh, that's where we're going to be turning our attention today. So if you can keep that open, uh, that'd be really great. I'm going to pray for us uh, that God would help us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for these words uh, that you spoke to your servant Moses and to your people. I pray this morning, Father, that we might be able to hear them afresh and that you might challenge us, Father, as your Holy Spirit takes your living word and applies it to our hearts. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I thought I might start this morning with a, uh, a question. When I was younger, I, I used to have an idea. If someone said, what do you, I like to think of God as, how would you complete that sentence? I like to think of God as, and I remember being a kid, I don't think I'd ever seen any books with this in it, but I distinctly had a vision of God being an old guy in a chair surrounded by fluffy clouds. That's kind of what I had in mind. I really don't know where I got that from. It would have been quite idolatrous, I guess, if someone had painted the picture. But for, for whatever reason, that was my picture of God. So what about you? If, uh, if you were to say, I like to think of God as, how would you finish that sentence? I probably, I probably tainted it now, and you're all thinking of old man in a, in a chair, aren't you? Um, so, Who would you say, Stuart? Anyone from Lord of the Rings. Okay, excellent. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to think about how do we imagine God to be? And yet imagining God to be is not enough because there is a God who is really there regardless of how we imagine him to be. And so I want us to think this morning, what is God like? What is God like? What does God like? What is God like? What does God like? And how can I do that that God likes? <laughs> what can I do that God likes? So what is God like? What does God like? And what can I do that God likes? All right, that'll, that'll keep us occupied for this morning, I think. So let's explore the God who reveals himself through a conversation with Moses, okay? So we're going to hear God and Moses, uh, and we're going to look at that reading that was just uh, brought to us from Exodus 19. And we're going to try and find out what do we learn about the God who is there from how he speaks with Moses. So a reminder of how we've gone in this sermon series so far. So we're looking at God on mission in the Old Testament. And I have an overview of the Bible that we've kind of been using. Uh, that's the Old Testament in pictures. That's the New Testament in pictures. In our timeline, we are here where that blue arrow is there. What we've seen so far is that God's mission has a destination. The restoration of right relationship between people and each other and between humanity and the Father, and between humanity and the creation. So we've seen that God's mission has a destination. We've seen there's a need for God's mission because that's not the way it is today, is it, folks? We've also seen that there's a danger. Human sinfulness left on its own will run amok, and we saw that in the story of the Tower of Babel. And then last week, as we looked at Abraham, we were reminded of the scope of God's mission, God said to Abraham, look, as many as the stars of the sky, so are your offspring to be. And so we saw that God's mission will be specific. It will have Israel at its heart. God says, I'm going to make you my special people. He said that to Abraham, and he will work his mission out through a special people called Israel. But it will also have a global impact and go to the Gentiles, go to the ends of the world. So... 
Let's go to our passage here. But before we do that, I want to ask you, does anyone know what this thing here is? Don't call out yet. We'll let everyone just sweat it for a little bit longer. Yes, so some people have went their hands up straight away. Does anyone want to have a speculation? I think it's a what? It's a toaster. Fantastic. Has anyone never seen a toaster look like that? Excellent, okay. Okay, so how would you toast things in this? Can someone tell me? You pull the sides down. Okay, so this, this thing at the front here is a little door, and you pull that towards you, and behind that are the elements that are glowing hot that will toast your toast. So you put it on the little shelf, and then that goes up and rests the bread up, and you pull it down and flip it over. You have to flip it over. Do you remember that? Flip it over so you get it done on two sides. Back in the olden days, kids, I used to see one of these at my grandparents' place. Now, I... I oh, no, sorry, no, no. It just so happened that they like things like that. Uh, so here's the thing. Um, there's a reason why we don't have these anymore, uh, apart from the fact that it had the kind of plaited um, uh, electrical cord that went into it. Terrifying, right? When you open that thing up, inside are the exposed elements. They really are. So there's electricity running up and down like this, glowing red hot, and your job is to reach in and take your toast. I get... Every part of it is just terrifying when you think about it. You would never put it on a table with your kids these days, but I used to love flicking it open and having a look at the glowing redness that was inside. But it's just a terrifying thing. Now, now what do we tell our kids today to never put in a toaster? Never put a knife. Now, I reckon today it's very unlikely you're going to do that, but here it was just a wall of live electricity, and so it would have been absolutely, totally easy to accidentally touch that, and to die getting your toast. All right. Toast is good. This toaster is dangerous, okay? What I want you to see as we look at Exodus 19 is that God is good, but he is dangerous. God is good, but he is dangerous for people like you and I. Let's have a look at uh, at verse 10 in chapter 19. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them, Uh, today and tomorrow. That means uh, set them apart for me. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to, to death. And uh, it tells us then how they're to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No personal animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Now, at one level, this might freak you out. Here's the thing. God is so holy and righteous that it is actually dangerous for sinful people like you and I just to stumble into his presence. And it's saying here, if they do that, you're to kill them. And you're not even to touch them because they've been so unclean and evil. If you touch them, it might impact you. Stand back and kill them. Now, it just doesn't fit in our head. First of all, uh, before you think God was really about trying to kill people on the mountain, what did he say was supposed to be put up first? Was anyone listening closely enough? There's supposed to be barriers around the mountain. So God's not interested in killing anyone. And he's also said, don't stick the knife in the toaster. Did you see that? It will go badly for you. So there's no desire to kill anyone, but there is a reality. 
It is a terrifying thing to approach the holy God if you're a sinful person. So don't come without bearing a proper thought about what it means. So it says, I think here it says, God is holy. So the God we meet, not the God we imagine in our heads, but the God we really meet in the Bible is holy. And a holy God is dangerous to sinful people. That might be a surprise. He's actually dangerous for us. And uh, I think that's the kind of, uh, that's the picture, isn't it, on the mountain? Don't put your knife in. Don't, don't come willy-nilly into God's presence because it's dangerous. Well, secondly, and perhaps more encouragingly, we find out something else about God. Have a look in uh, chapter 19, verses 3 to 4. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him on the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, some of you might not know the story of God's salvation of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. God overwhelmed Pharaoh with plague upon plague until eventually Pharaoh said, you guys need to go. They left. And as they were going, Pharaoh changed his mind for about the 10th time. He changed his mind, said, ah, no, we don't want them to go. And so he sent his army out after them. They're heading out. They're marching out. All of God's people are marching out. They come to the edge of the Red Sea. Heard about this before? They come to the edge of the Red Sea and they're facing, no one in Israel, we understand, could swim. They, they as a nation, did not like the sea. So water here, death. Charging army with chariots here, death. And they pray to God and say, God, what have you done? You're crazy. You took us out from slavery only to have us die on a beach. And God, through Moses, asked Moses to raise his hands, and God parts the water of the Red Sea. The people walk through on dry land, and when they get to the other side and Pharaoh's army charges in, they're midway across when God brings the water back over them. And the army that was pursuing them, the greatest army in that world at that time, was destroyed without the people of God having to raise a weapon. And there they were on the other side, separated by water, defeating the, the, uh, the empire of, of Egypt. And here we have a new people on their own, totally free on the other side. Now, when God says here, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself, it wasn't that God became a giant eagle and picked his people up. It's a word picture of the way he plucked them from Israel and saved them to the other side. Uh, plucked them from Egypt and saved them to the other side. So here's the thing. God is merciful and gracious. He's a merciful and gracious saviour. And he chooses and he rescues. See, see, what was it that the Israelites contributed to their own rescue? I think that all they contributed to their own rescue was being slaves. And then following God's call to leave and to trust him, they were saved by him. So God is merciful and gracious, and he is our saviour. Now, that's a good thing to know about the God who's there, isn't it? I like this sign. Uh, it wasn't found on this one, but it says this. Attention, life ring boy. Not speaking to small humans. Uh, life ring boy, uh, please do not use life ring as a pool toy. See, God's salvation shouldn't be mucked around with. It's a serious thing. You were saved from destruction. It's not to be trifled with. 
So the God is holy, he's dangerous. God is saviour, don't mess around with his salvation, receive it with trust. Third thing we find here, and we're going to read over these verses a number of times to mine them for what they tell us about our God. Have a look with, uh, with, at verses, um, verses 3 to 5. We'll read them again. Moses went up to the Lord, and then he says, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. Why does that matter? Because God made promises to Jacob. And then we're told, this is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5 Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Here's the thing. The third thing you need to know, God is holy, God is saviour, and God makes promises. God makes promises. In the Bible, they're called covenants, binding agreements, a bit like our wedding or or like a, a contract. God makes a contract with his people. He marries his people and says, I will be faithful to you. That's tremendously encouraging because the God who's dangerous saves us. And the God who saves us promises to look after us. And so God, he makes promises. He's faithful and committed and he will keep his side of the bargain, which is good to know. So three things about the God who's actually there. So what does God's character and action demand from us? So that's who God is. What does that mean for us as creatures? Well, the first thing that we see is a call for obedience. So we're going to just keep working this little part of the passage. You've seen how I saved you, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Now, contrary to uh, Australian sheep management, which is a helicopter and a motorbike chasing sheep. In the Middle East, the picture is a speaking shepherd who the flock follow. Can you see the shepherd there at the top? What we are called to do as a people in response to this gracious God is that we are to obey him and follow his voice. So our job is to be obedient, listening to and obeying God's word. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful picture. Because we have a powerful, mighty shepherd who goes before us and leads us in green pastures. How wonderful. So we're to be obedient. But here's the thing. We can't be obedient without knowing the master's will. Or we can't be obedient without listening to the master's voice. So if I say to you, you need to do what your boss has said and you never listen to the boss, how can you know you're being obedient? You can't know, can you? So if we're called to be obedient, we must know our master's word and will. We must know our master's word and will. I love this picture. Uh, Park ranger. Does anyone anyone want to be a park ranger? Happy that there are park rangers? No response about park rangers. That's fine. That's good. Let me tell you why I think they're pretty cool, pretty amazing. Here's the thing about park rangers. They love where they work. That's a good start, isn't it? They love where they work. They are devoted to knowing all about it. Why? Because they want to preserve it. They want to protect it. And they would love, if you give them half a chance, to tell you about it. Yeah? They would love to tell you about it. So they, they preserve this place. They love it. They get to know it. They care for it. And because they care for it so passionately, they want to tell you about it as well. Fantastic. 
Have a listen to what Israel was supposed to do. If you're obedient, verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my uh, covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, what's Israel's job? Israel's job is that they are, we are, to be priests. To be priests, to be people who honour God, to be distinctive ambassadors in love with our God. We're to be priests. Now, I'm not really saying that park rangers are priests of the wilderness or something like that, but, but you get the idea, okay? Here's the thing. The job of priests is before God and on behalf of others. So it, the idea is, say, say, here's our holy God up here. Here's the people and here's me. Say I was the priest, right? I'm only doing half my job if I'm talking to God. The idea of the priest is I help you to worship God. Can, can you see this? So conversely, if I'm really into you and I ignore God, I'm a pretty rubbish priest, aren't I? I'm not taking you anywhere. It ends up being about me. That's terrible. So here's the thing. Israel were called to be priests before God and on behalf of others. That's pretty awesome. How were they to do that? I'm going to say the way they were to do that, and you'll never forget this again, is using baked beans. It's true. Using baked beans. That is how. No, no, Israel was to have a distinctive diet, but, but I do want to tell you, it was, I don't think it was necessarily about baked beans. But, but here's, here's my, uh, my, my way to remember what they were called to be. In verse 6 it says, You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be holy? Well, I'm going to suggest to you there are three things that make up a picture of biblical holiness for people. And it's uh, in this can of baked beans. Okay. Uh, what type of baked beans is it? Well, it says rich tomato on there, but, but whose baked beans are they? SPC, very good. Now you've got it. Okay. We're to be called a holy nation, separate, pure, changed. All right? Separate, pure, changed. I, I, did, this, I, I did this talk, I think, when I was just out of high school. I might have been 19, so about three or four years ago. Um, and uh, I've still got kids in this, in this youth group who come up to me and say, SPC. Separate, pure, and changed. So today, I'm, I'm entrusting baked beans to you today, okay? Here's what it means. You're to be separate. To be a holy nation means that you're to be set apart for God's purposes. You are not to be following the gods of Egypt. You are not to be following the gods of Babylon. You are not to be following the gods of Rome. You are to be set apart for the one and only God. Separate. Pure, okay? You are not to be in the defilement, the sin, the muck of the world around you. You're not to be the same as them. And in order for that to happen, you will need to be changed. Something will need to happen to you. You cannot go on as you have gone if you're to be set apart and pure for God. Are you with me? Separate, set apart. Pure, not defiled by the world around you. Changed, you'll have to be different at odds, renewed from the life that you used to live. And wonderfully, they were to be a holy nation, not one holy person. So it's actually a corporate activity. It's something that we do, not just something that you do. Are you with me? All right. Everyone know what the program is? Good. Excellent. Eat your baked beans. Great. 
A holy nation will only be so insofar as it is noticeably distinct. What that means, terrible writing in the end, I think. Um, Here's the thing. You'll only be a holy nation if you're recognizably different from the nations around you. Otherwise, you're just another nation. So to be a holy nation, we have to look at you and go, there is something about that group over there. They are quite distinct. And if you think about the Jews, are they like that? They are today still, aren't they? They're a distinct group of people. They have food laws. They have laws about how they do their Sabbath. If you're an ultra-Orthodox, you certainly have ways about how you wear your hair and, and all that sort of stuff. They are a distinctive people group. Now, we might think as we go to an airport after a holiday, Australians are a distinctive people group. You can hear our accent as we come up to you. We're distinct, but we're not set apart for God. And so what they were called to be was a holy nation distinct from the nations around them. Now, here's the big lesson for today. And I showed a couple of people before this and they went, this is a real revelation. So plug yourselves in. I want to tell you today that chapter 19 precedes chapter 20. How are we doing with this? Is that up for our mental uh, you know, gymnastics on a Sunday morning? You with me? Chapter 19 precedes chapter 20. All right. That's all I've got to say. No, no here we go. I'll explain. Why, why is that important? Well, here's the thing. Chapter 19 speaks of God's rescue. And chapter 20 in the Ten, Ten Commandments speaks of God's regulation. But I want you to see that the law follows rescue and does not precede it. The law follows rescue and does not precede it. You don't get rescued by obeying the law. You get the law as rescued people. Can you see the difference here? The holy nation is the nation that was saved. And to be a holy nation, you need rules and regulations. So you can be a distinct holy nation. But you don't become a holy nation by following rules and regulations. Chapter 19 precedes chapter 20. Okay, let's think about some of the implications of that. First of all, uh, do you know the Ten Commandments? You had them read to you today, so it's a bit of a cheat, isn't it, really? I want you to think with me, how would we go if we were to score ourselves against the Ten Commandments? Now, I love doing this with people. I, I, I have people come to me and say, why should, I, why should I let you into my heaven? I ask people, why should God let you into his heaven? They say, I'm a good person. I say, that's fine. On what standard? They go, well, I obey the Ten Commandments. My next question is, do you know the Ten Commandments? No, not really. Okay, so what can we come up with? Well, when we, whenever I ask people to come up with the Ten Commandments, here's the first one that they come up with. Do not murder, right? And if we're scoring it, we can go, good point, right? Yes, haven't murdered anyone. Fantastic. The second one is do not commit adultery. Now, at that point, it gets a little bit awkward, and I just give them a good point, right? I just go, no problems. Okay, I, I really want to hear, right? So two good points for you. Fantastic. The, the, third, the third one that they come up with is do not steal, Right? And I just look at them and I go, where does that one go? Two good points here. Where does this one go, guys? It's on this side, isn't it? Do not steal. And then if they didn't do that, the next one is do not give false testimony. Thank you. You just lied if you didn't put the stealing one on that side. So now we've got two and two, all right? And then we've got this amazing one which says do not covet your neighbors dot, dot, dot. And um, I love that one. Uh, because there's basically no one who hasn't looked at somebody else's dot, dot, dot and gone, I would like that dot, dot, dot for me. So now we've got three bad points and two good points. And then here's what Jesus says. He says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. 
And he says, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So now we're five and oh, and I'm going to show you the other five just to make sure that you're not doing too well on this, all right? Here's the next one. The next one is honor your father and mother. I'm not even going to ask you. I'm just going to put it on this side over here, okay? All right, okay, so that's six nil. And then we get to no other gods before me, make no idols, do not misuse the name of the Lord and keep the Sabbath day holy. I am telling you, brothers and sisters, that unless you are somebody very, very distinct from me, you, like me, will have a big fat donut on this side over here and you'll have 10 over here. And here's what I say to people. You thought that you were good enough for God. You picked the standard and by that standard, you are 10 and 0. That's pretty troubling, isn't it? That's pretty troubling. So here's the thing. What are these commandments telling us about our holy God? The first thing is that they're, they're sort of broken up into, I think, two sections here. They tell Israel how to be a holy, holy nation. They say, you're to be monotheist. You're only to have one God. Remember about his jealousy, about his name, about the Sabbath day, about idols. You only have one God. The others are telling you about how to live a holy life about how to live a holy life. And they will be distinctively then separate, pure, and good. You're doing well. So how do we do what God likes then? Well, if you're in Judaism or Islam, then the answer to that is that we need to work hard at pleasing God. If you're a Christian, you'll say, I cannot ever do enough good work to pay off my 10 and 0. I'm absolutely gone. I need Jesus to come in and save me by his work. His work. Jesus has saved me by his work. And therefore, I do good works of thankful obedience. You see? Chapter 20 follows chapter You're with me, aren't you? So because we've been saved, we will then do good works, but we will never reverse it. Christians will not believe, will not fall for the lie that we will make ourselves acceptable to God by doing good works. So when people came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, which is the most important law? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, Oh, sorry, with all your, whichever way around, you've got it. Um, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think the really important thing is we can go, oh, so Jesus reduced the law to two laws, right? So I've got, it's going to be easier to obey, isn't it? You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your, all your, and all your, how are you doing with all? I think it's a better one. Don't worry about the 10. If you can't remember the 10, you're going to fail at number one there, aren't you? We haven't loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one, love my neighbor as myself. Are we all not condemned by that? Maybe even from the car park coming in here, yeah? Zipping ahead of someone else or whatever it is. I don't know. Love my neighbor as myself. We're stuffed. Note that obedience is impossible without salvation. So when Jesus tells people this, he doesn't say this is the path to be saved. He says this is the path of the saved. Okay. So Judaism, Ten Commandments, and then 613 laws. Jesus comes up with two laws. Either way, I want to say to you, we're in big trouble. Big, big trouble. 
we're not going to we're going to fall short of God's standard. But here's the thing: as Christians, we have the same call to be a distinct people. And I think you'll notice this is pretty cool. We are called to be monotheist, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're called to holy living, which is love your neighbour as yourself. It just so happened that Jesus was far more efficient at putting it together. That's helpful, isn't it? Okay, so how does this flow? Well, I want to take you to uh, 1 Peter, and I want to just show you quickly in 1 Peter how this is all supposed to work together for us. So 1 Peter is at the other end of the Bible. If someone finds the page, they can call it out for me. 1 Peter. Just going to quickly show you how what God said to Israel, he says to the church in a new way. Okay? So 1 Peter. Has anyone got the page? 1220. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. It says to God's elect scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. First of all, we start off with salvation in this letter in verse 2. In verse 14, we see a call to holiness. Have a look at this. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Saved by grace, set apart for good works. Incidentally, this verse, uh, 14 to 16, I used to have on my wall in my bedroom when I used to live in my mother, mother and father's house. And I'd wake up every morning with this stuck on the wall next to me. And I love this verse, a call to obedience and a call to holiness. So we start with salvation and salvation leads to holy living. And that's because of the grace of God. Second, holy living leads to questions. Have a look at chapter 2 and verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people. He's writing to the church here. Listen to how similar this language is to Israel, right? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. When we sing at the end, that's, that's the reason why, yes? Calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and, and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See this? We're saved and our salvation will lead to godly living. There's a godliness about the saved person that leads the pagans to accuse us of wrongdoing. What are you doing? You're doing something wrong, but... On the final day, they'll see that God was right. Thirdly, our questions should lead to respected ambassadors. Flick over the page. We're going to go to verse, uh, chapter 3 and verses 13 to 18. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats or be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 
For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the thing. God saves us. He transforms us. He gets us to live as witnesses in the world. And what I want you to do, if you've been captured by this today, is where to be respectful, respected ambassadors for Jesus. So grace leads to godliness, leads to gracious answers. Grace to godliness, to gracious answers. All right. Here's our application. Number one, you have to get grace. Remember how scary that picture of the mountain was at the start? Do you remember that? Where we started with God in fire on the mountain? I want you to see that that holy God, through his son Jesus, has made it possible for us to approach him. How good's that? And it wasn't because we were good enough. It was because of his love for us. So I want you to get grace. 19 before? Convincing. I know you've got it. It's great. I want you to get grace. Look at this book title, would you? How to avoid being a very, very bad person. All right, here's what I want to tell you. Give up. Not going to work. It will not work. Read the book cover to cover, and your best day will be when you've just read the last sentence and before you've started trying to do it because you will fail. You will fail dismally at this. You cannot avoid it outside of the grace of God. So give up trying to be good enough to God. I speak to people all the time about trusting in Jesus. And a bunch of them will say, I want to try and get my life in order before I make this decision to trust in him. And I want to tell you that he's absolutely upside down. You can't get your life in order outside of God. So don't try. Give up trying and fall before his mercy and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. So give up. Number three, can I encourage you to get real about God's holiness? It's dangerous stuff messing with God. And if you're here today and you're not right with God yet, can I encourage you, you need to sort it out. You need to sort it out. Today's a great day to get saved. Don't go poking at the holy God. Stop it. It won't work out well for you. And fourthly, can I say to you as a church, we need to get holy. Is that to me as well? And remember, getting holy is his work. He's going to work it in us. He'll do it. He wants to help us do it. It's not to make us more acceptable to him. It's a response to our salvation. You, me, everybody, we need to, we need to work on holiness before our God. And we need to get into the beans, I reckon. We need to be separate, identifiably separate. We need to be pure and we need to be changed from what we were. And it was great hearing Nicole's testimony earlier. Not what you were. Not what you're going to be yet, but not what you were. Praise God. God's church has a mission to be a holy nation. And wonderfully, God's mission has a church, a holy nation, who are going to bear witness before him in the world. Here's what it said on... Uh, on Mount Sinai, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you saved your people, that they didn't deserve it, but you saved them graciously. I thank you that you kept your promises, that you wash and purify them. Father, I pray for us that if there are any here today who are dabbling with the toaster, Father, that you might help us to repent, to say sorry for our sins and to give up poking dangerously at you. Father, I pray for those of us who've been saved that we might know what it is to pursue you in holiness. Father, forgive us. We have fallen short of your standard. We have not honoured you with our whole heart, mind, soul and strength and we have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. Father, renew and refresh us that we might be your distinctive ambassadors in this world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.